What's up, y'all? This is Reverend Mikey Noshal, and welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. I want to let you know real quick, we have a retreat coming up. I will be teaching it alongside Andrew Chapman. It's a four-day silent compassion meditation retreat. It'll be on July 6th through the 9th in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, and we're calling it the Interdependence Day Weekend Retreat. And you can find out all about it at floweringlotusmeditation.org. And as always, if you want to support Wild Heart Meditation Center and this podcast, please like, subscribe, and rate wherever you are listening to help people find us. And if you would financially like to support us through donation, you could do so through Venmo, and our address is at Wild Heart Nashville, or you can visit our website, wildheartmeditationcenter.org. As always, peace and love, my friends. Hope you enjoy. In some ways, it's kind of always what we're talking about, so we'll move into the topic, <laughs> um, which is really on the Buddha's first noble truth, the truth of dukkha. And I want to talk about the wisdom of dissatisfaction. You know, in all of the practices that we undertake on the Buddhist path, I'd say that we really only have one goal in mind, and that is happiness. I use that word intentionally because it's a loaded word, right? But I think if we just put it simply, that is kind of what we're looking for. And it's not maybe in the Buddhist terms, we wouldn't say happiness. We might say something like liberation, or freedom, equanimity, peace. And we're not just looking for liberation, peace, and happiness for ourselves, but also for all beings. Because we start to see that your happiness and my happiness are inseparable. They're actually the same thing. But to simplify, the direction we're headed in is we're, we're looking for happiness. And what I really respect about the way that the Buddha taught is that he's not so much interested in how or what we do to become happy. He's interested in what is getting in the way of our happiness here and now. So in this way, I think of the Buddhist teachings as really subtractive. It's not about what can I do or what can I get or how can I improve myself or become something that I need to be in order to be happy. It's how do I uncover where my happiness exists already. And so, what's covering up our happiness? That's kind of the question. That's what the Buddha's interested in. And the way that the Buddha taught is he doesn't, he has answers for this question, but knowing the answer intellectually is not going to help you. So that kind of sucks. It's like my whole life I learned in school, if I just learn all of this stuff, (laughs) I'm going to be successful and happy and healthy and You know, come to find out some of that stuff is helpful along the way, but it's not an intellectual thing. It's really a practice of a deep realization. And so we have to kind of deeply internalize or realize where our happiness comes from. And we all have to do that ourselves. And so the answer on paper is simple, but it's subtle. 
the reason why the Buddha says that we're not happy, which you can investigate for yourself, is because he says that we don't really see the world for how it actually is. That the mind is obscured. And not just the mind like we think of in the West. They have this word for it in Pali Sanskrit, chitta, which means the heart in the mind. Is obscured. And misperceives what this experience we're in really is. And so what is this experience that we're in? What is it really? Well, last month we talked about the truth of impermanence. And this is really the kind of core essence of what the Buddha is getting at here. He says, well, your mind and your heart long for a world that is predictable, that's reliable, that's consistent. But the experience that you're having actually on every level of your experience, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, in the external world, the universe expanding, the climate changing, nations, economies, cultural identities changing, even on the micro level of the external world, particles are constantly in motion. So there's impermanence out there, but the Buddha doesn't really care about the impermanence out there. There's also the impermanence that we're affected by as sentient beings. And this is on the macro level that we experience birth, aging, sickness, and death. You kind of know that coming into it, or you learn that at some point. Wait a second, this isn't forever? The body tells you that as you go through this thing we call life? And try to maintain it, but it breaks down and, and it gets sick. And so on the macro level, we, we know this in our lifespan. And we see this, and I think we really like to focus a lot on this meso level of our experience, our jobs changes, relationships change, circumstances changes. We move through life and life changes. The conditions, the environment that we're in. But then the, the level that the Buddha is really interested in is noticing change at the level of moment-to-moment -moment experience. Like my man here was saying during the check-in, noticing that the mind itself changes. How you feel changes. The sensations and experiences that are happening inside are constantly changing. And so where do we get our happiness from? if everything that we're experiencing on every level of experience is constantly changing. And the Buddha says we've got to search for a higher happiness, a happiness not, that's not born out of the world, out of conditions, external or internal conditions. We have to find a deeper abiding sense of happiness that doesn't require things to not change. And so what this means, the simple answer to this question is what's getting in the way of our happiness is that we look for happiness in things that can't provide it. We look for satisfaction and experiences that are inherently impermanent. And if you do this, 
you do this, it's not your fault. It's the conditioning of the mind. It's part of having a human brain. What do they say? Our brain is wired for survival, not happiness. And the Buddha says, well, why can't you have both? The middle path, right? So I like to think of it like we're wearing glasses and the glasses just are getting fogged up and have little specks of dirt on it. And what we're doing as you know, we embark on this practice, contemplative practice, is we're cleaning off the lens. We're helping ourselves be more okay with change, be more understanding and compassionate with experiences that change, experiences that are difficult, that there's not always a clear answer. I always so much, I just want the answer. You ever feel that way? It's like I go to my therapist sometime and just like, fucking tell me what to do. <laughs> my therapist has been a therapist for 40 years, and I'm a therapist, so he knows better. So he just, <laughs> why don't you just sit with that feeling right there? What is that feeling right there? So it's simple, but it's subtle. And we'll talk a little bit more in a couple weeks about how we clean the lens, how the Buddhist teachings and practices help to kind of move us in that space of being more at ease in this impermanent experience of life. But today I want to focus more on the dirt, more on the fog, the stuff that is challenging or difficult, that kind of obstructs or gets in the way of our happiness. And this is also where the Buddha started. And I feel like this is a really interesting thing in terms of looking at world religions, that the Buddha, much like maybe a medical doctor would, he starts with the problem. And then he looks for a cause of the problem. And then he proposes a prescription for the problem and the result, which is freedom from the problem. So the Buddha starts by talking about this thing called dukkha. And dukkha, Rachel talked about it last week, so I won't go into depth, but it's a word that's notoriously hard to translate. And what it means is it means something along the lines of stressfulness, disjointedness, dis-ease, Sometimes it's defined as suffering, all of those things. It's an umbrella term. And how they've used it during the time that the Buddha was living is they would use it to describe when a wheel well of an ox cart wheel didn't fit quite right with the axle. So it's kind of like, think of it like a mechanics term for describing disjointed wheel well and axle. So that life, he's saying, is kind of this experience. He's not making a proclamation like this capital T truth that he's teaching us. He's asking us to investigate. Have you noticed that life, just when you get comfortable, just when it's kind of going smoothly, you get that kind of bump. 
And I always give the example of the shopping cart wheel that just won't fucking turn, you know? (laughs) It's a good metaphor. It's not bad. It's not awful all the time. It's just kind of like it's always... You can never quite find a constant or a lasting space of ease within all of this changing stuff. All right, so you all follow dukkha. We all know that experience, hopefully. So when the Buddha, in the story of of his awakening, after he woke up, he kind of had this difficult moment where he was like, what do I do next? You know, what does one do when you're fully enlightened? When you have this deep acceptance of impermanence and you can live within it without this extra layer of suffering and stress. Not that there's not pain or gain and loss and all the other things in life, but that there's not that constant reactive stress. And his mind said, maybe you should teach. Maybe you should help other people. And he said... To do that, this other part of his mind spoke and said, that would be frustrating. It literally says in the sutta, that would be tiring and vexing for me. (laughs) He said, because people are so fundamentally tied to this need for certainty, that the mind doesn't easily comprehend things that it might exist outside of our preferences and expectations that we're so overcome with busyness and stressfulness and getting along and doing the next thing and planning the next thing that it is hard for us to really have the willingness to sit down and kind of flip the script on the whole thing. Maybe my happiness is not in that stuff out there. And fortunately for us, the voice that said to serve one. And he went and visited his friends that he was meditating with before his awakening. And he said, these people, they were ascetics, so they were really uh, into these kind of intense self-mortification practices. They thought the idea why there was suffering was because there was pleasure. And so they tried to deny themselves of any pleasure, thinking pleasure was the problem. And the Buddha, in his realization, he realized that it's not pleasure that's the problem. It's the relationship to pleasure. It's the attachment. It's the craving. It's the clinging. It's the thinking that it's going to provide lasting happiness. That's the problem, not pleasure itself. But he said these these guys, because they were all guys that we know of, are pretty hardcore. I'm sure they'll listen. So he went, made the trek, and he gave his first sermon ever, his first teaching. In Buddhism, I guess we don't say sermon as much as sutta, discourse. And I won't read the whole thing, but I'll read the section on dukkha. This is what he said. The first teaching that he gave was on dukkha, and he said, this is dukkha. Birth is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Sickness is dukkha. Death is dukkha. Encountering what is not dear to you is dukkha. Separation from what is dear to you is dukkha. Not getting what one wants is dukkha. The heart and mind in this condition of wanting certainty, clinging for certainty itself is dukkha. 
And then he said something really interesting. He said, such is dukkha. It can be fully known. It has been fully known. Such is dukkha. It can be fully known. It has been fully known. And so what the Buddha is doing here, and this is common for Eastern spiritual traditions, is he's not giving us a truth to believe in. He's actually giving us a task to practice. Our task with dukkha, aging, birth, death, not getting what you want, getting what you don't want, encountering what's not dear to you, all of those things, our task is to fully know it, to become intimate, to embrace it. And now we can see why he was thinking about not teaching people. Because he's saying, like I asked you all in the prompt this morning, have you noticed that when you're able to lean into the discomforts in life, the challenges, the stressfulness in life, that actually there's less suffering? There's pain, sure. There's heartache, there's loss, there's all of that, what I call the inarguable But there's a whole lot of running around in these other ways that I know for me, I run around to try to avoid or distract or react or, you know, fix and figure out that always just create this second arrow of dukkha. And the Buddha is saying, I believe that it's that second arrow, it's that reactivity to these experiences that we can let go of. In another teaching, he offers these different categories of dukkha, and I thought I would share them with you this morning. And the purpose for the Buddha teaching categories, I really like these suttas where he gets a little bit more descriptive. And the purpose is just to kind of point out different ways that we as people having these subjective experiences of body and mind, that we may be experiencing dukkha in our own lives. So it's not meant to categorize like every type or way you can think about dukkha, because it's a big thing, right? If impermanence exists on all these levels, dukkha also exists on all these levels. But what he says is, how do we, you know, how do I help people to recognize it so they can get to know it, become intimate with it? And the first flavor of dukkha that he talks about is something called dukkha dukkha. <laughs> and I love dukkha dukkha because it sounds really awful. <laughs> As if one dukkha wasn't bad enough, we've got two. And so dukkha dukkha I just described is the type of dukkha that we experience around having a physical body. There's the physical and also then the secondary mental suffering that comes from birth, aging, sickness, death. Having physical pain, bodies with nervous systems. You know, there's this kind of body that we have on loan, and it has its own lifespan. 
and we take care of it and we want to you know, nourish it and all of these things and it will still get sick and it will still eventually pass, break down. So I call dukkha dukkha the inarguable. The physical body is a realm of discomfort. I believe that the Buddha's awakening experience didn't uh, get him out of the physical dimension of the body that has pain. As a matter of fact, throughout the suttas, you can read and hear about after his awakening, him experiencing back pain. It's the mental suffering, it's the agitation, the irritability around that that we can find freedom from. And as a matter of fact, in the West, the reason why mindfulness is so popular in the world of psychotherapy is because of John Kabat-Zinn, who introduced mindfulness as an intervention to help people with chronic pain. So we've all experienced discomfort in the body. I would say it's a pretty consistent space of discomfort. It's universal. We sometimes forget that. Everybody in this room will experience discomfort today. Some, sure, more than others. Some people have physical limitations. Some people have terminal illnesses. We all experience loss. As we get older, our body just naturally start to lose hearing, memory, cognitive ability. So we can't escape the objective reality of this, of having a body, but we can escape the denial and resistance of that reality. We can learn to show up in these moments, pain and illness, and take good care of ourselves. Have you all ever heard of anticipatory pain? Something that people with chronic pain experience. I think we all have, are familiar with it, though. It's that body has this kind of memory around pain, too, where like the mind and the body will co-create a worse pain than is physically felt in just the sensation of the body. And so the body itself will start to tense and will hold and... <clears throat> All right, so that's dukkha dukkha. The second category of dukkha that the Buddha points to is a place that we can fully know dukkha, that we can get intimate with it and understand it is called viparinama dukkha, which means I call it the dukkha of changing conditions. And something that I've already talked about uh, earlier, but it's kind of this experience of what happens when our, the conditions of our life change and the type of reactivity that comes from trying to hold on to something that you don't want to go away. So it's specifically kind of looking at things that we want in our life that are changing. Hello, breakups, relationships. <laughs> Mm 
And so we can start to be intimate in these moments when things are changing. A simple way that I like to practice this I've been talking about for a while is I notice this, I call it Sunday Dukkha. You know, it's like uh, the feeling you have when you're a kid and you know school's tomorrow. That's a, a good, really simple way to kind of practice of like watching how you know, sometimes avoidant I am or, or sometimes I stay up too late on Sunday because I'm just relishing and <laughs> trying to kind of hold on to the weekend. And then, and then the problem, and, and not to get super deep on this because, you know, it's, it's kind of a silly investigation, but I really started to notice that the problem is, is my mind started creating this distinction between my work life being this thing I had to do that felt like obligation. And weekend life felt like this thing that I got to do. And a time for space and fun and creativity and excitement. And so when I just let my mind create those distinctions and was holding on to the weekend and, you know, I realized I was reinforcing this idea that tomorrow is going to suck, you know? in this really subtle way. The Parinama Dukkha, the Dukkha that comes from change, from things that we enjoy changing. The last, but definitely not the least, and probably the biggest area of focus in the Buddhist teachings is what's called Sankara Dukkha. And if you look at the teachings on liberation, what the Buddha defines liberation as is the stilling of sankara. So the way he describes it is the cooling down of sankara. And what sankara means is really hard to define, but what it means is basically uh, the mind's reactivity. So what I would say here is that the mind creates its own dukkha. It creates dukkha out of thin air. It creates dukkha by ruminating, by resentment, by all or nothing thinking, by comparing, by criticizing, And so we have to, I think, get intimate with the mind that creates dukkha, that creates stress. And the first step for me was seeing that this is actually the conditioning of the mind. So the goal of meditation is not to somehow get rid of my mind and stop my thoughts, which is what I thought meditation was early on. The meditation is actually to get distance from these thoughts, to see them clearly and to not always have to grab on to the rope and let it pull me around. You know, you know that, uh, like, I don't know if y'all have ever been skiing. I grew up as a kid in Michigan when I was really young and I couldn't ski on the big slope. So we had those ropes that would pull us up the hill. And it's like, the mind that just, without active awareness, without mindfulness, that just grabs hold of these stories, of these uh, 
the, the negative self-talk, the judgments, the comparison. And that what we're doing is we're trying to just get to know the mind that does that. Get some space and distance to have more of a choice in how first, when we're starting meditating, how long we stay there is a good starting point. So I can't stop my mind from going there, but I don't have to stay there so long. And that was the first bit of refreshing you know, uh, possibility that came through this practice is I realized when I was very depressed when I came into the Buddhist practice, I was like, oh, I don't have to spend like a week caught up in that story. I could maybe just spend, you know, like early on, us like maybe six or eight hours. <laughs> and I still felt, even after that, still felt all the feelings, right? The inarguable feelings, loneliness or sadness or fear or whatever the feelings were, but the thoughts that were propelling the feelings, keeping the feelings around. I didn't have to stay so long in the thoughts. And then with practice, you start noticing I'm a little bit quicker. A couple minutes. Oh, critical thought. Cool. Thanks for sharing, man. Not right now. Driving the car. And with time, start to notice them when they, as soon as they pop in. And with time, harder to notice, but they start popping in less. Your mind itself, the conditioning itself starts to change. My mind is a whole hell of a lot less critical than it was when I started meditating. Those thoughts don't arise as frequently, not saying they're gone, as they used to. So the Buddhist teaching highlights these three areas where we experience dukkha. We experience it in relationship to our body, birth, aging, sickness, death, physical pain. We experience it in relationship to conditions in life that we want to be here changing. And we experience it in our mind, the mind creating and generating it. So the word for this task that the Buddha laid out, to fully know dukkha, because that's the practice. In Pali Sanskrit, it's dukkha parinya. Parinya means to fully know. But it's an interesting word because it means to know something like you might know a person. So it doesn't mean, when we think know in the West, we think know appear understand something, like you get it rationally, cognitively. But in the Pali Sanskrit, the word parinya, what it means is to know something as intimate as you would a person. Like, oh, I know them. I'm familiar. So I like to say that the, the task is not to know that dukkha is a thing. The task is to actually wake up to moments of it in our life to increase our familiarity with it. To kind of get in the water with it and be like, oh yeah, this sucks. Let's feel how it sucks. Let's be present for it. Not go find it. It will come to you. Don't worry. <laughs> you don't have to be a nihilist if you're a Buddhist, you know. It will come to you. But when it comes to, to familiarize yourself, how does it feel in your body right now? What is it like in the mind right now?
So the task is to embrace dukkha, and it means that we want to fully inhabit it in the body, in our life conditions, and even in our mind. And if we were to be able to fully know dukkha, it means we could deeply accept its presence in our lives. We would know it to be the nature of this life that we live in. And so I have a three-year-old daughter, and she is the most insightful meditation object that I've had since I've been practicing over 10 years. Um, My daughter does not understand time. And I don't mean the way we might kind of joke about a kid and say they don't understand things. Like kids in general, including my daughter, they don't understand time. There's this term in psychology called object permanence, and I'll define it. It describes the understanding that objects continue to exist even when they're no longer visible or detectable by the senses. So children are not born with the ability to know that when they don't when something they see goes into the other room that it still exists. So think about that. You as a baby, all these things were happening and whatever wasn't just in front of you didn't exist. And so the first signs of object permanence, this idea that I could move this bell into the other room and then you know that the bell still exists, it's just somewhere else right now, that starts to develop for us around four to seven months, they say. But it continues in layers through your childhood. So I knew about object permanence before I had a daughter. I knew this intellectually. I knew it was a thing, but my daughter, when you don't give her something she wants right now, she fucking hates it. (laughs) And she doesn't understand that we're going to have it later today is a real thing. She didn't understand, I should say that having the chocolate after nap means that you will still have it, it will just be later. But over the last couple weeks, and this is what's really cool about having, watching, I should say, because she's not really mine, she's kind of her own thing, but watching a person develop is in the last couple weeks, she started to be really into time. She started saying, after nap, tomorrow, five minutes, later, today, this weekend. She even started learning at school the days of the week. And she would get them all wrong, but she'd be like, can I have this on Friday? (laughs) I'd be like, today is Friday, and no, you can't have it today, because I told you you can't have it. So I knew about object permanence before my daughter was born, but this experience of watching it, realizing that all this time, how frustrating it's been at moments, was that my daughter was not able to comprehend the possibility of later. 
gave me a perspective of her that has helped me to be more patient and more understanding. It's given me more peace in my relationship with her. Now, that peace is not linear, and it's subject to change. But as she starts to come into that awareness, I realize, oh, she just did not know When I said no, that that wasn't forever. It gave me more patience. It gave me more understanding. And this is the kind of knowing that the Buddha is describing. Patient, kind, compassionate. So have you ever had an experience? I'll ask you all. You can think in your head where you know that a person in your life is incapable of showing up in a particular way. Like you know it. And there are kind of two ways of knowing. And wherever you're in your process with that is fine. There's a way of knowing it where it's like, I really need to have the anger around it because it's too close and I'm not yet ready to let the guard down. That's okay. That's important sometimes. And there's a way of knowing it where we, where we realize a person's incapable of showing up in a particular way, but you feel at peace with it because you don't expect them to be any differently. Because you know that's what they're capable of. That's, to me, what acceptance feels like. And I'm not always there. I can't force myself into that. But meditation helps me get there. So what if we hold the same perspective we do for these people as the essence of the whole world that you live in? Right? That the world itself is not capable. It's not capable of providing lasting happiness for you. Your job's not capable. Your partner's not capable of making you happy. Your current circumstance, whether... Your current circumstance is pleasant or unpleasant. It's also not capable of whether you're going to be happy or not. And so this is what I call the wisdom of dissatisfaction. Is knowing that this world that we live in, on every level, this body, this mind, this world out there, it's not capable of making us happy. And when we realize that, when we can deeply accept that through practice, we don't demand the world to be any different. The fear here oftentimes, and I'll just say this as a disclaimer, is that then we just somehow let the world happen to us. We call this the near enemy of equanimity or acceptance, which is actually indifference. And in my experience, practicing meditation hasn't led to indifference. It's actually led to more of an ability to communicate effectively with what I do need from people, places, and things in the world. To make choices to get my needs met. Because I'm okay or I can find a way when they don't. Because I know for me, a lot of times I held myself back from telling other people or the world or going after things that I wanted or needed because I was afraid that I wouldn't get it 
But now that I know that it's okay if I don't get it, I'm more able to do it. Does that make sense or is that crazy? <laughs> so I would just say, and this is a tangent because I know a lot of the inquiry we have around here, understandably, is this kind of fear that if I was to really accept that the world's not capable of providing my happiness, I would somehow fall into nihilism and depression, indifference. I wouldn't want to participate in the world. But I found that the opposite has been true for me. So dukkha dukkha, viparinama dukkha, sankara dukkha, show us the inherent challenges that we're yoked to as human beings. The nature of the body, the nature of changing conditions, the nature of the mind. And what the Buddha is saying here at the base is that we want to be honest about the ways we suffer. I suffer every day. Sometimes in small ways, sometimes in big ways. I've learned that sometimes the smaller ways are worse than the bigger ways. Do I acknowledge the suffering that I experience? Do I share it? Do I look inwardly to see the second arrow that the mind's creating around it? This is the practice. Or do I deny it, distract from it, isolate myself from other people because of it? So one of the things I've learned is we talk about the three refuges in Buddhism and one of the three refuges is the Sangha or community. Is that one of the most helpful places for me to practice around dukkha and fully knowing it is with other people. Because ultimately what we're getting at through all of this is not just our own happiness. I said at the beginning, right? What we're getting at is actually the universality of this suffering that we experience. That we're all actually walking through a world that is incapable of making any of us happy. And that finding a way to be vulnerable and honest with the ways that we suffer or struggle, the challenges that we experience together make it easier to move through it. Because the outcome of the practice is wisdom, but also compassion. And one of the uh, places that has been responsible for saving my life, they say pain shared is pain lessened. And so we're not just being honest or intimate with our suffering for the sake of our own happiness, but because it helps other people it dispels that part of the mind that compares or judges your outsides to my insides when I hear you say I'm struggling. Right? So when we're vulnerable and honest and open with other people, it's the great equalizer because it has this feeling, I don't know about you, but it's a feeling for me of, oh, me too, we're in this together. I'm not alone. That's the most important thing. So I heard a really wonderful Buddhist teacher named Tanisara, not Tanisara, Tanisara, and she was sharing at one of my trainings and she said that one of the Pali Sanskrit definitions for the word dukkha, du akash are the two words, and it means separate from the other. So one of the ways that we're looking at what dukkha might really be is this sense of feeling separate. 
and that maybe ultimately, on an ultimate level, against all of this other stuff, yeah, we can't find lasting satisfaction out here because there is no out here. On a universal level, I know that sounds really big, but maybe that's where we're headed, is this understanding that we are really interconnected. And the only way to feel more connected is to be more open about what we experience. I'll share a final quote by the Bodhisattva, Mr. Rogers. <laughs> he says, anything that is human is mentionable, and anything that is mentionable can become more manageable. When we talk about our feelings, they become less overwhelming and less upsetting. <laughs>